Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Today's Warner Archive Collection new release podcast proudly presents a quartet of new releases. We have the acclaimed HBO documentary Ethel by Rory Kennedy, made about her famous mother, Ethel Kennedy. We have two triple features from the golden era at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. We have Walter Pigeon starring as Nick Carter in a Nick Carter detective triple feature. And then Joel and Garda Sloan, the rare book dealers. And crime crackers. Kind of fulfill the ersatz Nick and Nora Charles role. The not-so-thin man. As we will take not so fast a time to describe the triple feature known as Fast Company, Fast and Furious, and Fast and Loose. And last, but certainly not least, is the DVD debut of one of the most important and acclaimed television series of the 1960s. Richard Chamberlain and Raymond Massey star in the DVD premiere, the home video premiere, season one of Dr. Kildare, remastered and now on DVD from the Warner Archive Collection. So Matt and Dan, let's start by talking about Dr. Kildare. I'm going to start by talking about Dr. Kildare, but also talking about Nick Carter, which is what's interesting with this week's releases is we have two characters, Dr. Kildare and Nick Carter, who transverse decades and many incarnations in many different media. That's true. So yeah. let's Dr. Kildare is a name to this day familiar to people, even if they've never seen the Richard Chamberlain show, or the series of theatrical films most famously portrayed by Lou Ayers. But let's Or the radio the show. The radio show. So, with Lou Ayers. So quick background on Dr. Kildare. Max Brand. Max Brand created the character in the 30s uh, series of films. The first film, Interns Can't Take Money, had Joel McRae playing Dr. Kildare. And then the... And what most importantly was not an MGM film and did mm. not lead to a series of films. It was a standalone motion yeah. picture. And then we began the MGM series with Lionel Barrymore's Dr. Gillespie and... Lou Ayers is Dr. Kildare. This series lasts until Lou Ayers goes to serve in the medical corps as a conscientious objector, at which point the series continues as the Dr. Gillespie series. Then we have the radio series. Then in the 60s, we have a very young man beating out hundreds of newcomers and established talent, securing the role of Dr. Kildare alongside Ray Massey's Dr. Gillespie in the TV Dr. Kildare. And then there was another TV Dr. Kildare that didn't last very long, but we're not here to talk about it. Wow, that's a lot of Kildare. Yeah, Dr. Kildare has been out of view for a good 20-some-odd years, and for a show that was as popular running five seasons as this was, that is a shame, a shame we will now undo with the release of this nine-disc, 34-episode collection. Now, Dan... 34 episodes. That's crazy. When, in fact, certain other websites might say only 33. Yeah, what gives, George? I thought there were only 33 episodes in the well, first season of Dr. Kildare. How could there be Kildare. 34? Is there, is there a bonus? Is there something those websites don't know? Is there an episode that's been discovered that no one has ever seen? Ever? It, it could be. Well, we'll talk about that as we finish talking about Dr. Wow. Kildare. But Tease. Dr. Kildare was really the first hit television series from MGM Television. In the context of television from motion picture studios, MGM had a kind of bumpy start. 
they started with The Thin Man in terms of adapting, right. uh, which lasted for two seasons. That's not terrible. But two seasons is not a big, long run. It was a half-hour version of The Thin Man with Peter Lawford and Phyllis Kirk. There was Northwest Passage with Buddy Ebsen. There was Father of the Bride with Leon Ames that didn't really take so off. What I'm hearing are the titles of movies. I mean, so they right. were going they into were, their library. Every studio did that. The exceptions being our studio, Warner Brothers, William created. Dior, they the did stuff. try to do a Casablanca TV series right. that well, failed. They did try to do a King's Row series that failed. And the one they took off was the one that was original. Original, Cheyenne. Now, of right. course, there were some derivative series that were based on motion pictures, like The Roaring Twenties or mm. Sugarfoot, based on The Boy from Oklahoma. But basically, Warner Brothers television productions were original and new. And... Columbia had Screen Gems. There was an MCA TV that was doing original stuff. But the studios were generally looking at properties they owned that could be television series. And MGM was very aggressive in this regard. But they really didn't hit pay dirt until the arrival of Dr. Kildare. Maisie didn't even make it past pilot stage. Well, well let me just ask. Was the setup with this, with, you know, Richard Chamberlain playing the younger intern and then having the older, Dr. wiser... Dr. Gillespie, Ray Massey's the mentor. Basically, right. Dr. Gillespie, in the beginning, tells Dr. Kildare, your job is to save lives, not to interfere with lives, and then Dr. Kildare ignores him for four years. So, basically, <laughs> Dr. Kildare is being asked to follow the Prime Directive. Yes, speaking of Prime Directive, pay attention to episode six, guest starring William Shatner. Admitting service. And now, is that how the movies were, too? I mean, is yes. this oh, yeah, just yeah, following yeah, yeah. the same yeah. formula? The procedural, the procedure has for, been established. For a show that gave us the phrase nosy Parker, uh, Dr. Kildare is quite a nosy Parker. I think one of the things that's most haunting about this show and most memorable about it is its theme song. Yeah. And the theme music was written by a very young Jerry Goldsmith, who is billed oh. as Gerald. Gerald Goldsmith. Gerald Goldsmith. Not to be confused with Johnny e. Williams. Right. But this was one of his earliest works. He did write the music for Man From U.N.C.L.E. and other MGM TV series and was writing scores for films, feature films at MGM in the mid-60s. But his work on the television programming really uh, is key and he's one of the film composers like John Williams that's so beloved by contemporary film music fans, having written scores uh, like Poltergeist and, uh, of course, uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. I, of course, uh, relate to the exteriors, which is the same exterior as General Hospital. It still stands in L.A. And I've had the pleasure to be in that building in the hospital. And so I just see it all tying together because I wish that uh, you had Richard a doctor killed there to yeah. interfere in your oh life. Oh, my gosh. Well, and Blair General Hospital is the name of the hospital in the series. Mm -hmm. The exterior that you're talking about, is that Good Samaritan that you're I thought that about, was or, General or, Hospital, or, like the outside, the deco. I mean, I could be The wrong. hospital downtown. Yeah, downtown right yes. outside of East, yes. East yes. L.A., which is the same exterior for the soap opera uh, General Hospital. Right. The actual front of the hospital in the episodes right. was Not something that. that was used in hundreds of MGM films and television programs. It's actually the administration slash Thalberg building. Ah. <laughs> the Thalberg building, the rear entrance to the Thalberg building 
was the police station, the Fort Lauderdale right, police station, yeah, 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 yeah. and where the boys are. Right. It is, and it's also a hospital, even in non-MGM films, like in the 70s, uh, New York, New York was shot on oh, the MGM okay. lot, United Artists shot right. it there, and uh, when Liza Minnelli is going to the hospital to have her baby, it's the Thalberg building. I mean, it's just, but it's the rear entrance of the Thalberg building that served as the front of Blair General Hospital in certain episodes. But in the first episode, which is called 24 Hours, mm -hmm. they used a freestanding set on MGM's lot, too, on the New York Street. Uh, there is that bumper where it right. shows the, yeah, the, the hospital. Big X, yeah. and it's, that's it's, the one. Yeah, that's the hospital. Uh, that's the that hospital bumper. where you made your mark. Yeah. But well. Richard Chamberlain had actually been cast in a pilot at MGM for a series that didn't go called The Paradise Kid. And that was a Western series. <laughs> but the studio obviously had high hopes for him, and he did not fail them because his star ascended quite rapidly in this show, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, he became overnight teen idol, which was odd because it was also a show directly oriented towards adult viewership. Very adult. Yeah. And um, My mom was very young, but she would always talk about, oh, Dr. Kildare. And Richard Chamberlain had a very pleasant singing voice. So, of course, MGM's right, record he did company. This, so that's right. MGM's record that. company had Richard Chamberlain sings. And uh, lyrics were written to the Dr. Kildare theme song. Right, there's like oh a my. Richard Chamberlain sings, there's really? lyrics, and it, the, it's the theme song in the background. It's, it's quite a well, song. What, he recorded what the, more than one album. What are the lyrics like? Well, we can't recite know, the lyrics. Can we, the... can we talk them a little bit? Is it like, Dr. Kildare, hey, he's the guy who's there? No, it's, they're, they're very they're <laughs> It's not a Hanover, apparently. Yeah, it's not, you know, hey there, Dr. Kildare. No. No? No, no, no. But... One of the things that's great about episodic television from the 1960s is you see a panoply of the guest stars amazing are actors. And, and that's just, this is just the first season. It's so let's just, just start throwing out names aside from the it's great. Well, I'm going to start at the top and work down. Yeah. Ted Knight. Oh, yeah. Margaret O'Brien. Yeah. We already mentioned William Shatner. Mary mm -hmm. Astor, Oscar winner for The Great Lie. Anne Francis. Sidney Blackmer. Wow. Suzanne Plachette. Dina Merrill. This is a roll call. Ken Berry. Martin Balsam. I, I saw F Troop. Edward Bins. Well, I'm sold. There are really... Well, a, a, basically, I'm just going to Rip Torn. Rip Torn I'm going to throw in one for the nerds. Pat Hingle. Now, who is Pat Hingle? He played Commissioner Gordon in the Michael Keaton Batman. And he was a <laughs> member of the Actors Studio. Let us not forget. Ooh. Now, this is... But wait, I didn't say Glennis Johns yet for the noir fans. Oh, there you go. There's basically an A story with a patient. But this show, like, this is but a template-creating yeah. show. This this I, show demonstrated to TV, this is how you do a nighttime drama slash soap opera. And then a B story that's a little more personal. Yeah. You know, it seems like the beginning of the template, but it's not boring. They, It's like more like an anthology show. It was an know, immediate hit. Yeah. And ironically, there was another huge medical drama in ben the 60s Casey. on ABC, Ben Casey with Vince Edwards. Comic so, strip by Neil Adams. So it was kind Two of like a battle of the doctors for many, many years. And, of course, in the daytime, you did have... Mm -hmm. General Hospital right. and the doctors and you had the nurses which wow. became a primetime soap I mean medical dramas were everywhere but Kildare really defined the genre I think in the 50s you had uh, Medic with Richard Boone you right. know, but it was really Dr. Kildare and Ben Casey that, and that cemented Speaking of templates I will suggest to everyone listening to this podcast that they get a copy of Dr. Kildare 
and Children's Hospital and oh, mix them up, back. and you will have the best viewing experience. <laughs> so this is in the these days uh, of the early 60s. It was non-ordinate for an hour-long television series to have 30-plus episodes per season. It was like four years, but there's 190 episodes. Oh, yeah, these years, you, you're five years, you're lucky to crack 100. Well, one of, the, one of the factors in there is that the fifth season was the only season in color, mm-hmm. and they went to two half-hour episodes a week. So uh, they Batmaned it, and I suppose I should before Batman. I should have said 191 <laughs> episodes. That's right, George. What do they mean when they say backdoor pilot? Well, backdoor pilot is where you have an episode within a series that serves as the pilot for a spin-off series. Mm-hmm. So the introduction, for example, of Andy Taylor. Sheriff Andy Taylor first appeared in an episode of Make Room for Daddy with okay. Danny Thomas. Where he wrote Danny Thomas a ticket. That's right. And, you know, you saw George Jefferson and Louise Jefferson. Sure you know, that was an actual spin-off right. as opposed to there was a planted episode. Now there are planted episodes within series that never happened. There's like that Simon Earth? <laughs> yes, or the or the Brady Bunch episode where there's those those cutesy poo neighbors oh, that that's right. down the street right. and you hardly see Carol and and Mike Brady or the kids at all they just kind of pop into that episode mm. so uh, Norman Felton and his Arena Productions company we have to mention them we've talked about Arena Productions before because we've released The Girl from Uncle right. we've released The Lieutenant the wonderful Gene Roddenberry series mm-hmm. with Gary Lockwood but the first major arena production that was a co-production between Arena and MGM TV to really hit pay dirt was Dr. Kildare. And Norman Felton was the head of arena productions. And he really set a tone of excellence for everything that he did at MGM. And he made sure that this series was top drawer. And it became such a hit that I'd say somewhere halfway into the first season, they decided to produce a pilot that would use Dr. Kildare characters to introduce a new character who could have his own series. And that would be a crossover backdoor pilot. And the contemplated series would deal with psychiatry and forensic psychiatry. From the frontiers of the mind. And Wendell Corey would star in a show called The Eleventh Hour. Hmm. So there was an episode of Dr. Kildare shot for the first season called The Eleventh Hour that featured Wendell Corey in the role that he would eventually play in the series because the series did get picked up. And the leading actress who is the special guest star in that episode was none other than Hitchcock leading lady Vera Miles. Hmm. And her character's name was Anne Costigan. And in this episode, there is much interplay between Dr. Kildare and the character of Anne Costigan. There is much interplay between Dr. Gillespie and the Wendell Corey psychiatrist character. And the pilot was so successful, the crossover backdoor pilot was so successful that it did not air (laughs) as part of the Dr. Kildare series because... They liked Wendell Corey so much, they decided... They said this is going to be the first episode of The 11th Hour when it premieres on NBC in September 1962. However, in order to do that and keep 
contractual obligations in place for Kildare requirements, they had to reshoot the sequences with Richard Chamberlain and Raymond Massey with other actors as other characters at another hospital. Uh, Wow. And as such, that episode about Anne Costigan, which is the title of the first episode of the 11th Hour series, and the 11th Hour series incidentally ran for two seasons, that episode has been seen in that form, but the Dr. Kildare version of it hasn't been seen it may have had broadcast overseas. We're really mm-hmm. not sure. Our, but our paperwork so is conflicting. Never in the but States. it did not air in the States. So the Dr. Kildare part, that's, he's sort of like the Captain Pike Kinda, in this episode. Kind of. You know, <laughs> now, it's a, it's a so, little cagey of so you to say that, though. How, <laughs> how did you find this episode? It was in the inventory, and we said, what is this extra episode? You know, 11th hour pilot. So you pulled it from the caves? And we brought in the elements and we also researched the legal files and mm-hmm. we found the whole paper trail that explained when it was filmed how wow. it was filmed what what they intended to do with it and the whole background behind mm-hmm. it and we run into this frequently we just ran into this with another series where we found another episode that never aired during the network run mm-hmm. and uh, we assume uh, the medical center with the with the three endings i mean there's a treasure trove still in those vaults. FBI season one, our release mm-hmm. has an episode that never aired on mm-hmm. ABC. There are all sorts of reasons. There can be a preemption. National, uh, Geographic. National Geographic special is probably yeah. one of the most common reasons why there would be a preemption. And then the re- the episode could show up in syndication. Mm-hmm. When we found the extra endings for Medical Center, mm-hmm. we thought maybe the reason there were those alternative endings or because of some need to change the episode, and then we discovered the Stanley Milgram situation. So here, uh, once again, going into the vault, because we were remastering every episode from original elements, and they look really magnificent, uh, especially for a 50-plus-year-old program. They're sparkling in their clarity, and I think our team did a terrific job uh, with these masters. They look fantastic. And that really brings you into... The it makes it feel so much more vital because the writing is very adult and it's not condescending. And the direction of these episodes is top notch. You've got some of the best TV directors of the 60s, Boris Segal and Buzz Kulik. And one episode was directed by John Bram, who was a great noir director at Fox. He did uh, The Lodger and yeah. Hangover Square and uh, one of our WAC titles, The Locket. Uh, so really first-class talent in front and back of the camera. And this is an expensive series and an immediate hit. And they hoped they could have that magic rub off on the 11th hour. And it lasted for two seasons, which was enough to say it wasn't just a flash in the pan. But uh, mm-hmm. hopefully we'll be able to bring the 11th hour to light because we have had a lot of requests for it at some point in the future but right now you get a glimpse of the Wendell Corey character within Dr. Kildare and let's pay a little bit tribute to the inestimable talents of both Richard Chamberlain and Ray Massey their acting is just marvelous here in every episode I just want to point out as watching it and watching some of the and I assume these are accurate 
medical treatments for the time. I mean, they go into it and they actually explain the diseases that the people have and the treatments and they name the drugs. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not alive during this period and going to the hospital. No, it would not be fine. <laughs> We've come a long way in 50 years with treatments. Speaking and of coming a long way, let's go a long way further back oh, good idea. for the Fast Triple Feature. As Melvin Douglas and Florence Rice star in Fast Company, the 1938 murder mystery that it introduces us to the characters of Joel and Gardas Sloan, rare book dealers. Now, these three movies we're going to be talking about are in one great case. Is they're that in on one disc because they're short enough in length to comfortably fit on a nice dual-layer disc with high-quality bitrate and a great value for the consumer because they get three movies on one disc, just like we did for Boris Karloff. And they're they're in each of and them, they're fast. Yeah, they say fast. They're fast. They are fast. And my favorite, of course, is Fast and Furious, which has nothing to do with race cars and everything to do with rare book dealers. And no diesel anywhere. Right. No. So let's start it with the first installment, 1938's Fast Company, starring, as George just said, Melvin Douglas and Florence Race. Now, also stars Claire Dodd, who in many ways is sort of the other female lead in the picture. Right, as she had exited her Warner Brothers contract and went to Culver City. Now, let's just set up the series a, a little bit. Now, these were based off of a series of books. Dan yeah, Dillon. series of books by Harry Kernitz, who was writing them under the pseudonym Marco Page. But, I mean, the books and the movies came out fairly uh, simultaneously. Uh, on top of each other, and it's about, and it's like a light comedy, Thin Man-esque. Very much so. Joel Sloan is a rare book dealer with a slightly hints of a slightly shady past and who is absolutely in it for the money. And he's married to Garda Sloan, who seemingly has come from money, a la Thin Man series, but she is also his secretary. Right, which is a little, it gets tongues wagging. And it, it keeps her guard up. <laughs> and now in each of these Who knew films, the used book world was I, so dangerous? I, I was going to say... This is before there was Amazon yeah. and books. Yeah, Amazon, you know what? If you have the Kindle, it's, we're, mi we're missing something. First editions will kill you. Literally. So, because I wasn't that familiar with her. George, if you don't mind, uh, what do we know about Florence Rice? Well, Florence Rice is, I think, best known to film fans as a leading lady in At the Circus with the Marx Brothers. Uh -huh. I think that's probably the film people would most know her from. But she was an MGM contract player who didn't have a huge career. She had a modest career for a brief period of time. But if you've been in a Marx Brothers movie, you are etched in the memory yes. of everyone because they only made 13 features, if you count Love Happy. <laughs> and, um, and, and we don't, don't want to. <laughs> don't count it. Love Happy is not a happy film. Thank God we don't own it. Um, but uh, I'll trash Love Happy at any moment, <laughs> especially Vera L Well, anyway, we won't talk about okay. it. But Florence Rice is great in At the Circus, and she sings an insipid song with Kenny Baker in it called Two Blind Loves. But she's wonderful in this yes. movie with Melvin Douglas, who's also terrific, as right on the cusp of before he played opposite Garbo and Ninochka. His, His star was really ascending yeah. at this time. Now, these three films have three different so, yeah. pairings. And That's then there's two sequels. Now, before, and, and the same set. Yeah, before we move on to the sequels, I do want to mention that in the first sure. film, Fast Company, 
there is a supporting player who definitely deserves recognition shout out because he is one of the most talented and most overlooked jet actors of his era which is the great Dwight Fry. Everybody just thinks of Dwight Fry from his universal horror epic but uh, Dwight Fry is really great. He's a really really great character actor. He plays a little man book forger in this. And again, the world of book forgeries. Now, he in each of these, usually an insurance. There's like in this one, an insurance company wants him to investigate forgeries, essentially, right? Because they well, stolen books, stolen books. Okay. But, but what they don't know is the books are being stolen and transformed into two books from I, one. I like that because you know it gets a little into book binding, which is somebody who's uh, done some graphics now, work. Now, it's, getting it's getting fascinating. To, getting to what Matt was talking about. Yes, there are two sequels, two subsequent films. Because that one was 1938, and then, the next two are 39. Right, and 39 so, saw boom, boom, boom. Fast and Furious and Fast and Loose. With a different pair of leads in each. Okay. The second film brings together, in my opinion, the, the most impressive pairing. Oh, we'll have words about this. Yeah, I have. Uh-oh. Well, to my view, only because it is a reunion. And you've ah. got Robert Montgomery and Rosalind Russell after having been so nefarious and terrified by their interaction in Night Must Fall. That's funny. I never put these together. Yes, wow. A total other look at them. And weren't they're you just, just trying having to kill me? fun. <laughs> yeah, weren't you just trying to kill me? Because Night Must Fall is one of our best-selling Warner Archive titles. And here you have the same leading man and leading lady just having a ball and being in a little fun. And they were A-stars in, I don't, they, you they really, were a. they were huge A stars, so I don't really think you could consider this a B picture. No, no. But it's, it was B picture running time. Yeah, and and the setup, same set, but mm-hmm. you know, Rosalind Russell, she adds her own twist in this one. She's in like her gowns, yep. you know, and uh, she's having fun in this. Yeah, They're both is. having fun, and and they That's both had a great sense of humor in real life. So that really comes through. But I don't mean to denigrate the third entry, which is, of course, yet another chance for, even though Alan Jenkins isn't in it, (laughs) it does have Ann Southern not being Maisie, but being Garda Sloan. Well, and... And, 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 Garda Sloan and Franchot Tone. And... It rhymes. Directed by Busby Berkeley. Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting... Well, and that's because Berkeley had left Warner Brothers and had arrived at MGM... And they needed something for him to do before he started working on Babes in Arms, which is his first oh, big that's, musical. That's interesting. So it's like, hey, we'll put you on Just, this little picture. And he made a lot of little uh, comedies and uh, light B pictures at Warner Brothers in the middle of the extravaganzas. He also directed the Dead End Kids and They Made Me a Criminal, right, which was right. actually his last yeah. Warner Brothers film. Interesting. So he was much more than just musical numbers, even though that, of course, was what, That's what, he, what he's famous for. But famous I, th- for. I saw there were like 20 films or so that oh, he directed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's just surprising as you, as I'm watching these films. And then Busby Berkeley directed this third well, one. Well, and especially his tenure at MGM, which lasted from 1939 to 43, as a contract director, even the musicals that he did there, mm-hmm. uh, films like For Me and My Gal, For Me and My Gal has no big, splashy chorus numbers. He was making much more... The Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland movies he made Mm -hmm. had big, spectacular numbers, and so did Ziegfeld Girl. But a lot of the other things, he directed a a picture with Eddie Cantor in 1940 called 40 Little Mothers, just a basic comedy. So he was 
able to direct a regular movie, and this is a perfect example. And, but do it well. And Southern in this one now. Uh, this is what I want to play. Is, she is I wanna, a. She's got Maisie hats. Yes. I just I get to talk about Maisie hats because she's she's wearing them. And, and it's a peach to see Anne before she's Maisie. Was she? I think she was Maisie. Has she already been? Yeah, yeah. she's already yeah, you're been right, one you're Maisie. Right. So I see this as, as Maisie as, as in Maisie. Congo Maisie. This is this yeah. is Maisie's brief marriage. That's that's exactly what I like. She to is think very Maisie. Yeah. She's Maisie. Yes. This one is more comedic than I think than the other two. That's it's why definitely the funniest. I, right. That's why I like this one, and she's uh, a little more Maisie conniving in mm-hmm. the beginning with the setup by uh, convincing her husband to let them go on a vacation. I thought that was funny. Well, the persona of Garda has been right. trying to get a vacation yes. through the previous two films. And she finally gets it in the third one. It took Maisie to do and it. And yet there's a murder. Now, the, <laughs> same, the same sensibility is evident in the next triple feature we're going to talk about. But before we get to Nick Carter, though, I do want to propose, and we don't have to do this on the air. We can okay. do it online or later. But I would one day like to play uh, Mix and Match Your Sloans. <laughs> For instance, I would pair Melvin Douglas and Rosalind Russell. Oh, that's not bad. And I think Robert Montgomery and Southern would be a peach of a pair. (laughs) Wow. Play at home, write in with your suggestions. And now on to the Nick Carter triple feature with Walter Pidgeon as Nick Carter, Master Detective. Now, I'm going to have to step in here and give some people some deep background on Nick Carter. This is very important. Nick Carter, in his heyday, was a fictional character whose fame was equivalent to today's Tarzan or Superman. Mm -hmm. He originally premiered in the 1880s in a series of Street and Smith weekly dime novels. Later was resurrected in the 40s, in the 30s and 40s as a pulp detective, which is where we, and then a radio series, and then this film series. And then I think most interestingly for Matt, all the way up to 1990, mm-hmm. he was revived in the 60s as Nick Carter Killmaster in a oh, series yeah. of executioner type novels, which lasted <laughs> all the way to 1990. So Nick Carter's fictional life stretches from 1886 to 1990, but going back to the 1886 version, He's very much a prototype Doc Savage. He's raised by his father to fight criminals. He's a perfect specimen in mind and body. He can lift a horse with a man standing on it. Uh, The works. And then when he comes back in the 30s, he's recast as sort of a more American Sherlock Holmesian character. And I might be wrong about this, but I think there were Nick Carter movies made in Europe. Of France. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Eddie Constantine. Yes, yeah. The American actor that was... The expatriate uh, movie star in France who was involved with uh, Edith Piaf for a while. I think he was in some Nick Carter movies in France. And uh, these three films are, again... You have three films on one disc, and they move like a bat out of hell. Now, and these, they're, just, I, they're great. This is more men's adventure. Absolutely. You know, maybe you might think of them as 50s covers. There's like, cars and guns and tools. Mach- machine guns. It's men's stuff with uh, and planes in this one. Yes. It's like technology. And Nick Carter stands out as an action hero and we from, should, a, uh, from another era. Really. And, of course, uh, we definitely need to mention that Nick Carter is played by the great Walter Pigeon. Yeah. And it is very sort of a super treat to see a young Walter Pigeon in action hero mode because he still has that voice of authority and, and droll wit. It, it's oh, before yeah. he became Mr. Miniver. Yeah. <laughs> he was, you know. There was very little Miniver in this. No. no, well, his bravura was minimized as his star 
maximized. Mm -hmm. And And he became more like down to earth, more worldly, more wise. Well, Nick Carter was an adventurer and these films are filled with action and adventure and it's great to see Walter Pigeon in that trench and they're, coat. Yeah. They're current. You know, these were these all three were made before we entered World and War II. And the specter of, of the war hangs over the films like, very much in, so. In 39, you know, it was about... Damn the, saboteurs. Yeah, and, and the Chinese. and then Microfilm. Well, I guess it's, it's just film film then. It was just film just film, film, film then. Film. But it involved a lot of burning. And the last one, it's got a German in it. And it's... Uh, you know, and he's standing up for for the little guy there, but it's but there's all this espionage behind it, and uh, that kind of makes it a little different than the other series. So this is the Nick Carter triple feature, and all three films come on one super duper disc. And we should mention the director of the first and the second, which is the storied cinematic. Jacques Tournier. Oh, yes. Not a Frenchman? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a name that you've heard us talk about on the podcast before. If you're a fan of film, you've seen his films. And he brings that great control of camera and pacing to these films. I mean, these are very, these are big pictures and a very, very concise running And he had time. graduated to these pictures from his work in short subjects yeah. at MGM. And this was a perfect segue into what was more minor budgeted, not the But he makes them seem to be giant budgets. Well, everybody always says that MGM's B pictures are like other studios' A pictures. (laughs) And uh, it's really true. Doing a double bill of these films and the Brass Bancroft. Yeah, no, these are Brass Bancroft. (laughs) And if you put them together next to Brass Brass Bancroft or Torchy Blaine, you really see the difference. Yeah, Yeah, you'll you'll see. Uh, But Uh, they're high... Quality entertainment. T- and terrific. Uh, and also Donald Meek. That's really the most interesting, the, the B-Man. Bartholomew. Oh, yeah. Love Donald Meek. So good. That alone is probably one of the weirdest side The brains to, uh, to Nick Carter's Braun, who very much is reminded me of Thompson and Thompson's from Tom Tom. A, a little bit. Yeah. His special power is that he sends out cartoon bees. And that he's very small and pops up everywhere. And, yeah, he, he's never too far behind. Yes. Now we take a, a total left turn and get a little yes. bit serious but also quite honorable in our praise for a, a really heartfelt and wonderful documentary that uh, appeared on HBO early this year called Ethel. And it's a loving portrait of Ethel Kennedy made by her daughter, Rory Kennedy, and uh, I saw this film when it premiered on HBO because there had been a great deal of promotion around it, and uh, she was born after six months after Kennedy was assassinated, so she never got to know her father, And, and this film is really not only a loving tribute to her mother, who thankfully is still very much uh, healthy and alive and and vital and and 84. People people such as myself, I I really hadn't known what she was up to. I remember from my very, very young childhood when Robert Kennedy was assassinated. It was a horrific, horrific thing. And that was not a good year, 1960. No, no. And I remember the King assassination. Mm -hmm. I remember the Kennedy assassination. And, um, and, this, and this film concentrates a little bit more on the relationship, right? Oh, well, yeah, this, this, this is Robert, Robert is very. I mean, this, this is, is the love story. The, yeah, and it's a love story, and it's also 
it really is a testament to both of them as people yes. that they, you can tell that they had a wonderful marriage. Eleven children. And there can be eleven children <laughs> in non-wonderful marriages. <laughs> and I'm not being funny in saying no, that. No, no, I, I know is, what you mean. This is, and it's <laughs> not – very often when there is a familial documentary mm-hmm. – You'll see some kind of a uh, – they're rose-colored glasses or you're not getting an honest portrait. This is so – I was I found it so refreshing because it was something new mm-hmm. that was so heartfelt and not manipulated. It is so well done and you really get a sense of the person and how this incredibly strong woman suffered that horrific loss – of the great love of her life and the father of her children and how mm-hmm. she carried on in his name, raised those kids, mm-hmm. and has gone on to do so many wonderful things in the subsequent 45 years since that horrific tragedy. What is unique about the documentary is it consists entirely of home movies and photographs and interviews with her siblings. I mean, this is... This is a family. And with Ethel. And with Ethel, who is not the most cooperative no, subject. She's, Dan's from New England. <laughs> is she very New England, Dan? I, I guess she became, I mean, I don't think she's, she's originally from like, like Phil, Pennsylvania coal family, something like that. But, yeah. But she, be- but she has become a New Englander. Yeah, yeah. There will be no introspection in Ethel's life. <laughs> no. There are work to be done. Stop asking me to talk about myself. And so she has to get it from a lot of her brothers and, and sisters. And the brothers and sisters yeah. all have – they clearly find their mother to be as remarkable as Rory. I'm mean, just really interested about – I mean because Ethel, for someone who was in such a public spotlight, always got that spotlight off of her and just mm-hmm. focused on the her children in the business and, and really stayed out of it. So, She's you not know. really a household no. Kennedy word. But, you know, but, like, you, know you, you don't think that's surprisingly, really what the film yeah. is about. Right. She's revealed to be this really remarkable person. Yeah. So, it's good uh, to pick up on the disc. HBO has a tradition of making some amazing, wonderful documentaries uh, Sheila Evans, I believe, is mm-hmm. the executive who's in charge of creating those. And this carries on in that remarkable excellence that is the hallmark of HBO's work in this regard. And we're proud to be able to offer it through our site. Mm-hmm. Something nonfiction <laughs> is something true. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's a rhyme for you. Hootie hoo. So. Let us ask you, Matthew, is there a letter this week? My gosh, I was so taken by Ethel's story that I forgot we we had a letter. I I was just listening. A letter. All right, here we go. To the archive. This is from John in Mesa, Arizona. It looks like a card. Oh, that's my voice cracking. Maybe it's a birthday card. It could be. It could be a birthday card, but no. Uh, a drawing? It's typed. Crayon? It's typed. typed. But well. it is signed. It's signed with a real signature. Dear Matt, thank you putting me first, mm. Dan and George, I'm a fairly new convert to the Weekly Warner Archive podcast, and I am enjoying it immensely. Your enthusiasm and depth of knowledge for the new releases from the Warner Archive keeps the podcast lively and informative. And never dragging right from me at all. It is especially (laughs) fun for me when George puts the films under discussion into context in the fascinating histories of Warner Brothers, MGM, and RKO Studios. Us too. This historical context is especially interesting to me and adds greatly to my enjoyment of the films when I get a chance to view them. 
My question would have to be about the 1960 Delbert Mann film, Dark at the Top of the Stairs. But I understand there is some sort of rights problem that prevents its release. So instead... Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I'll ask about the remaining Andy Hardy films, Uh -uh. which are a particular favorite. I love Volume 1 and can't wait to see the rest of the films released. Oh, and hopefully there are more Vitaphone shorts in the sets. Can't get enough of these. Anything to say about Andy Hardy? Andy Hardy is not far behind. And that will wrap it up for Andy. Yeah. Yes, but it will truly wrap it up for Andy. Uh, read into that what you want. Okay. Well, I also we had, we talked about Vitaphone just recently, I believe. Yes, there's a lot of activity on the Vitaphone front, and let's just say, separate from when this will arrive to your home via Warner Archive, that work is ongoing now at Warner Brothers uh, in partnership with the wonderful people at the Vitaphone Project and UCLA Cinema and Television Archive and Library of Congress all partnering together to restore more Vitaphone shorts. 50 additional shorts are being restored with their sound discs and picture elements united, audio restored, and eventually these will debut at the next UCLA presentation of Vitaphone shorts, which has become a really landmark event in uh, Los Angeles when it's part of the Festival of Preservation and the new Vitaphones come together. So in the past, we amongst ourselves have been talking about uh, Kickstarter and how in effect that Ron Mm -hmm. Hutchinson and the people at the Vitaphone Project were Kickstarters before there was Kickstarter. Yeah, just getting all that money went out and got the support to restore these films going back to the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And um, we can also thank Ron Hutchinson and the Vitaphone Project for having located the long-thought lost two-color Technicolor Three Stooges MGM short. Yay! Hello, Pop! Which is now being restored here at Warner Brothers through one of our laboratories. And it would not be possible if it were not for Ron Hutchinson and the Vitaphone Project and the people that work with him. When Ron gets done with the Vitaphone Project, can he get to work on the Doctor Who Project? (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say something. How timey-wimey of you, Dan. When we were at WonderCon convention recently, we had a little stack like of about 30 uh, Vitaphone posters. Oh, yeah. And... Okay, now this was that mostly was me waving my hand as they crowd. flew off the shelf, and but and a lot of kids picking it up. Now it's got a gr- it's a great cover, great cover, beautiful design, but it's just really neat to see people just picking it up and wanting to take a little piece of that. You know, like I I don't know if they even know what it is, but it was it was just very sweet to see. Well, you remember that when when MTV started, there was that whole campaign. I want my MTV. Mm-hmm. Well, decades before it was, <laughs> I want my Vitaphone. Vita fee. Okay. And he also adds that we're now back to John. By the way, the recent set of Wheeler and Woolsey films is fantastic. I agree, John. What a thrill to have these in my collection. But mainly I just wanted to say thanks for the great podcasts and keep up the good work. It is most appreciated. Thanks, guys. Sincerely, John. And well, we, we thank, thank you, John. And we didn't rehearse saying that in tandem. No, just hang out a lot together. <laughs> All right. If you want to send your letter, and please do. Please send it to the Warner Archive Collection podcast. 
B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. That kind of reminds me of the way they used to say the Spiegel catalog, Chicago 60609. Uh, you see, and I was <laughs> thinking of 02143. Right. Really, I, oh, you, I was just being original. Oh, or sorry. D- Dicker and Dicker of Beverly Hills. You know? <laughs> now, remember also to send an S-A-S-E. A SACE. Yeah, and I'm not going to say what that is. You can look that up on that, their internet. Uh, an SASE for an additional fun return surprise. How about that? And I guess that wraps it up. Absolutely. Well, thanks for listening to this Warner Archive Collection podcast. The new releases, we will again go over them. Ethel, the wonderful HBO documentary about Ethel Kennedy. We have the Nick Carter triple feature. We have the triple feature of Fast Company, Fast and Loose, and Fast and Furious. And last but certainly not least, the premiere DVD release of the 34-episode collection of Season 1 of Dr. Kildare, starring Richard Chamberlain and Raymond Massey. Those are our new releases for the week. Look for our next Warner Archive Collection podcast next week when we'll have even more new releases in store for you. So with that, I'd like to thank you. I'm George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. I'm the brain. Thanks for listening. <laughs>